Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 467 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo, and if you're new to this podcast, welcome. I am CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing and publishing and how to succeed as an author or writer. So in the last couple of weeks, I've actually been on the road, a big, big road trip. And I must admit, during that road trip, it has been very difficult to do a lot of writing or a lot of reading. Well, uh, certainly hard to do reading of um, printed books, but I have been listening to audiobooks, So that's been great. And um, yesterday I drove from Melbourne to Sydney and I didn't even play music at all. I just listened to audiobooks the whole way. So that was great. I'm back in Sydney and it feels good to be back in my own bed. Of course, I left my pillow at the hotel in Melbourne, so that's not great, but it was probably time for a new one anyway. I'm keen to get stuck back into my regular reading and writing routine. But first, what has been happening? Now, I read an article in The Guardian recently where the American author, George Saunders, uh, shared his tips for writing. Now, George is best known for his short stories, but he also has published a novel, you may have heard of it, Lincoln in the Bardo, which won the Booker Prize. In the article, he offers his seven tips to improve your writing. And these are interesting because some of them are not your usual tips. The first one is revise. Now, I know this is an obvious one. Your first draft is rarely going to be good enough and learning to revise and edit your work is essential if you're going to be a writer. Um, While I was on my travels, I actually was speaking to this lady who talked about the fact that her brother had just finished his novel, um, his manuscript, and she wanted my advice on what to do the next. And my first question was, is this his first draft. She wasn't quite sure what I meant. So I explained that, you know, has he gone over it again? And she said, well, no, he's, he's finally finished it. Um, And basically I got the information out of her that he spent a long time writing it, of course, and 10 points to him for even finishing it. Fantastic. Um, But he hadn't gone back to revise at all. He's, you know, except for little things here and there and except for typos, he just got to the end and thought his work is done. Now that I didn't, you know, it was difficult to break it to her, but that your first draft is you're not done when you're writing a novel. It's really going to be good enough. And it's so important to learn to revise and edit your own work because that's essential if you're going to be a writer. Some people, you know, when they go through their first draft, they're actually horrified at some of the gaps and some of the things, the inconsistencies, some of the characters that don't make sense or aren't believable, um, that sort of thing. So some people find editing, use, it, use the, you know, a more logical or less creative side of their brain. But George Saunders in this article says that for him, the momentary flashes of judgment that pop up when you're editing, are where the gold actually is. And I absolutely believe that too. So, you know, revising can be just as creative as writing and it's good to think about it that way. And I hope this lady who I met um, on my travels, I hope her brother thinks of it that way too because it can be quite a fulfilling process and a very empowering process. 
Now, the second tip from George is interesting. He says, number your drafts. So every time you make a major change to your story, change the number and be proud of that number. I mean, we advise people in our courses to number their drafts as well um, because it's important also just to, you know, admin reasons. (laughs) But he's saying it's good to get uh, to draft number six or 36 or 60 because it means your story is improving each time. It means you're really putting in the work. For me, tip number five is so important. Any time can be a good time. Okay, except when you're driving perhaps. But even when you're driving, you can think about your story. But yes, it is hard to type while you drive, which is what I've been doing a lot of. Any time can be a good time. So many people think that they can't write unless they have several hours free at an empty desk, in a quiet room, where all the planets align, all of the kids are somewhere else, you know. But guess what? Life isn't like that. You're never going to get that on a consistent basis. So write when you can. We've had writers tell us how they've worked on their stories while, you know, waiting to pick up their kids or commuting on the train. Stephen Hart wrote an entire novel on his commute. And always have a notebook with you, yeah, or an iPad. I love my iPad. Or simply make notes on your phone, send yourself an email, whatever it is that works for you. Try out lots of different things. Some of you might prefer a keyboard like on a like on an iPad, or some of you may prefer um, you know, hard copy version, a printed version uh, with a pen and pen and paper. So always have that notebook with you, whether it's in physical or digital form. Very, very important. You you do need a bit of peace and quiet to write. So Sometimes maybe think about getting up 30 minutes earlier or to find some time after everyone has gone to bed. You don't need hours and hours and hours. You can work on your story anytime. Now you can find that list of tips at The Guardian and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, uh, These tips from George Saunders. So yeah, the link will be in the show notes, but just so you know, number one is revise. Number two, number your drafts. Number three, print Number four, know when you over-revise. Five, any time can be a good time, my favorite. Six, face the problems in your story. Yes, sometimes it's easy to put your head in the sand, right? And seven, avoid thinking about your book's big themes. All right, there you go. Some great tips from George Saunders. Let's move on now to our competition. We have three copies of Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter, by Lizzie Pook. Here's what it's about. Western Australia, 1886. As the pearling ships return to Bannon Bay after a long diving season, 20-year-old Eliza Brightwell nervously awaits the arrival of her father's boat. But when his lugger finally limps in, it brings with it a tale of tragedy. Charles Brightwell, master pearler, has gone missing at sea. Immediately, whispers from the townsfolk point to mutiny or murder, but headstrong Eliza knows her father. She is sure he is alive. As she delves deeper, she discovers that the streets she thought she knew so well are teeming with corruption, prejudice and blackmail. How far is she willing to go to solve the mystery and save the ones she loves? And what family secrets will come to haunt her along the way? Because the truth may cost more than pearls, and she must decide if she's willing to pay the price." Oh, intriguing. Okay, so we have three copies 
to give away Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter by Lizzie Pook. Entries close on the 7th of February. So go to writercentercomau slash win for your chance to win one of three copies. That's writercentercomau slash win. Now, everyone, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope I'm hearing a collective, yes, give me the word of the week. <laughs> it is catoptromancy, catoptromancy. That's C-A-T-O-P-T-R-O-M-A-N-C-Y, catoptromancy. Aha. Uh-huh. So from the Macquarie Dictionary, it is divination by means of reflections in mirrors or looking glasses. So when Snow White's wicked stepmother asks mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, she is practicing catoptromancy. It's different to using a crystal ball, which is crystallomancy, crystallomancy, but both are a form of scrying. Using glass, that's scrying, S-C-R-Y-I-N-G, which is using glass or other mediums to see into the future or to see visions. And if you were thinking of taking up <laughs> cash up trauma and see yourself, then you would be part of a group known as the Speculari. The Speculari. There you go. Cat up trauma and see. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Okay, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Now, we have a return guest who is Felicity Lewis, because when she was on the podcast quite a while ago now uh, for What's It Like to Be Chased by a Cassowary, fascinating answers to perplexing questions, I knew that I wanted to have her on because she is the national explainer editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. And that book went bonkers. It was so successful because people love, well, all of these factoids and trivia and they love a better understanding of the world. And I think that what's absolutely fascinating about explainers is that they've only really come to the fore in the last few years. 10 or 15 years ago, you didn't see that many explainers in newspapers, but now they shape the conversation of um, you know what people are talking about because it's always something, generally always something very topical or something that people have wonder, been wondering about for a long time. And it's actually, um, I think it would be fascinating to be the national explainer editor for such prestige publications uh, because you really do get to set an agenda and decide where the conversation goes because um, so many people do read explainers because they are just that. They explain topics that 
most readers really do want to understand. So the book, there is a new book called Explain That, 31 Intriguing Reasons Why, from the Age and the City Morning Herald. And I wanted to dig deep um, with Felicity on our fascination with explainers. Thanks so much for joining us today, Felicity. It's a pleasure, Valerie. Thanks for having me. Well, we've had you on the podcast before because of the, you know, fab book that you um, edited, What's It Like to Be Chased by a Cassowary, one of the most intriguing titles out there. Uh, And this one is kind of um, on along the similar vein, and it's called Explain That, 31 Intriguing Reasons Why from the Age and the City Morning Herald. Now, you're the explainer editor. At, uh, at the age in the Sydney Morning Herald. Can you explain to us what that means for those people who aren't familiar with the term? Well, it means that I'm in the editor for commissioning editor for pieces that provide readers with background and context on what's going on in the news. So it, it, it's not that explainer journalism is, is an a brand new concept, but there has been a lot more of it in recent years, um, partly because I think all the information people have on the internet, getting um, stories in bits and pieces online, on social media, and just wanting um, more background to, to, to understand and make sense of all those jigsaw pieces that they're getting. So um, news organisations have kind of doubled down and made more explicit the fact that what they're offering is an explanation um, of what is a confusing world. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Because 20 years ago, there weren't things called explainers in the paper, but obviously there must have been an equivalent because there, even though there wasn't the proliferation yeah. of stuff on the internet in the same way, stuff still needed to be explained. So what was the equivalent then? Well, I was talking about this with the senior writer from the Sydney Morning Herald, Matt Wade, this morning, and he was saying how he kind of takes it that there's kind of revelatory journalism, which is like the news actual events that have happened that you're saying hey this just happened and then there is the more uh, observation based or explanatory journalism which is making sense of the why and the how I guess and in some ways you can do that that's shades of analysis but analysis once again is really picking apart that uh, revelatory journalism um, in a very specific way. So, yeah, the, the explanatory journalism, I guess, it could have been done in, in a feature form sometimes, um, but not always. Um, it could have been done in a piece that said something and something explained, but it's just that um, this has become its own um, form, I suppose, more explicitly. Um, yes, in more, yes. In more recent times and news or news outlets in America and so on, you know, like Vox and that kind of thing have, have as their as their business proposition where explaining the news. So I do yeah. think it has and it's come out of all the misinformation that's also online as well. So there's this proliferation, mm. there's this um, segmenting of, of information um, as I say, bits and pieces, how do you join the dots, you miss the start, you don't understand the agenda or the you know, motivations behind what's happening. Um, so that's where, where we come in. 
So there was explainer journalism before, it just wasn't called that. So obviously you were appointed at some point to become the explainer editor. Just to give uh, listeners a bit of an idea, what did you do before that to end up then as the explainer editor? In the immediate role before, um, I was um, um, kind of a multimedia special online features editor. So I was helping, I was, I was embedded in our presentation theme um, with our developers and graphic artists. And I was focusing on taking some of our, in, in, with, in a team context, taking some of our investigations, say, um, and some of our more in-depth reporting and presenting that in, a, in an engaging digital fashion. So, um, you know, graphics, visuals, really nice design, um, thinking about information design a lot more than with print. Um, there's a lot of information design in print too, but it's just a different form, format, you know. So, so that was my role and within that I did, projects such as um, I instigated projects such as helping explain the Belt Road initiative that the that Chinese governments rolled out a few years ago. So a big package, which was kind of an explainer by by any other name, I guess. And another one was how to spot a rip, as in a rip, as in swimming yep. in the sea, which is obviously a very visual thing. You can't really explain that without <laughs> showing. Um, and so I guess yeah, I was kind of moving towards or naturally doing, starting to do that kind of work anyway. Um, mm. Yeah, and so, I've, I mean, I've been a, a journalist for um, a number of years, so I've just had different roles, you know, over time. Um, yes. starting, starting out, Starting out as, um, I mean, I went to uni, I studied arts and law and I worked on the university um, newspaper and then I got a cadetship, so that's how... I got into journalism initially. So the explainers that are um, curated in this book, but also just the explainers that you decide that you want in the paper, how do you determine what topics to cover? Because they are really wide, varied and very diverse. Um, well, it's a bit like, um, I mean, that it, it's, a bit like any other editing in the sense that obviously some things come out of the news and they're crying out to be explained. Um, cryptocurrencies is one example. You know, um, we not everyone understands um, Bitcoin, not everyone understands what an NFT or a non-fungible token is. So we're, we're kind of, uh, there's, there are certain things that everyone says, I just don't understand these. So they're very easy. Others are um, a little bit more like we've got one in the book called Who Runs China? Well, that's like the kind of um, background piece that you could read to accompany anything on stories that are coming out of, out of China because it really does explain the, the dynamics of how the place is run um, that what what the Communist Party is, how you get into the Communist Party, who's in it, you know, that kind of thing. So that's really good. And then in other in other cases, sometimes they're more evergreen, what we call evergreen. And um, that is something that I think of uh, when I'm in the shower. <laughs> <laughs> when I am 
on a holiday, you know, any kind of, like any kind of um, inspiration, I suppose, creative inspiration. Um, things like uh, where did the Australian accent come from uh, came, came from me talking to a voice coach about how you teach people, actors from overseas, how to do an Australian accent. And I'm thinking, but where did that, like why do we sound the way we sound so distinctly? Yes. You know, yes. and how does that come to come to be? Um, and so um, the point of table manners, I guess, like with any editing situation or writing situation, shades of personal experience, my parents were red hot on table manners. And so I was just interested in it, interested in the social history of table manners. Um, and uh, I'm just trying to think of other examples from the book, but some of them are just, they're, they're evergreen and I think they're the kinds of things that people do wonder about but mm. they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily Googleable either. Like they're not necessarily something that you can look up that there's an answer to on, on Wikipedia already. Mm. So I try to, um, you know, we try to do something that's not easy to find anywhere else but that does resonate. Hmm. Yeah, love it. And um, uh, you must, among your group of friends, you must be the most sought after friend to bring to trivia. Yeah. <laughs> it's a funny <laughs> paradox. I, I was playing um, trivia um, during our most recent lockdown and um, <laughs> I'm, I have very big gaps. I'm not bad with some things, but there are other areas where um, I'm not that great. So it's a funny, it's a funny paradox. But there are certainly lots of really good facts that you do, surprising facts that you do pick up from editing. Yes. You know. Now, when you think of your topics, especially who runs China, which <laughs> you can write an encyclopedia about, um, it, how do you start thinking, okay, in your role as the explainer editor, you've thought of your topic because either it's part of the new cycle or it's an evergreen thing that you've thought of in the shower or wherever. What's yeah. your next step? I'm assuming your next step is to think of the ideal writer for it or do you or, or do you map out kind of the things that you think need to be in it um, before you even think of the writer? Um, I... I think a little bit about what it is, but I pretty quickly talk to the relevant editor or writer in that space right. um, and work out whether one thing you've got to be careful of is that you ask a question that there's an interesting answer to. So you've got to make sure that there's something there's something there and that the answer is going to be, uh, yeah, interesting and engaging to read and is not too dry or mm. um, and then I will talk it through with the the editor and or the writer and we come up with some bullet points of what what we'd like it to cover the actual question itself you can start with a question and then you can subsequently you know re-engineer the, the actual headline or the headline question on the piece um, mm. so and sometimes, or sometimes um, the questions come fully formed. Like, like another colleague, um, Matt Dunkley, asked me why do cicadas sing at dusk. So that was just a, a nice, 
good question. And yeah. <laughs> our, our national science reporter, Liam Mannix, um, wrote an answer to that question. Something like China, of course, our North Asia correspondent, Eric Bagshaw, is going to write on that topic. So there are people who do certain rounds who are the people for yeah. the, the, the appropriate people. We also have a dedicated explainer reporter, um, Sharon Grotch, who is a fabulous uh, writer and explainer and is also able to turn her hand to lots of topics that she's she might have a background in them or she might not at all. Mm. And, and she's able to um, get her head around something, grasp it, and then communicate what the answer to the question is. Are there different skills required to be a good explainer reporter compared to a more general news reporter? Um, I think that, well, you. I guess it's you're not chasing news leads, mm. you know, so in that sense it's a slightly different hat. Um, I think that, I mean, I've, I've asked Sharon about this too. She's an excellent... She's an excellent reporter as an investigator, and that's really important as well. I mean, there's the, there's the writing process, but that comes after mm. an investigative process. And she said that she can't start writing until she understands the topic. Like, so there's, and, and in order to understand the topic, as with any good journalism, she'll go to many sources and she'll you know, ascertain what she thinks the lay of the land is in that area first. Um, so I think that there's also a difference of emphasis. Um, and once again, Sharon's thinking was that she thinks the structure for her around the piece is less driven by a kind of classic narrative, narrative arc than by uh, logic. So mm. a logical unfolding of questions. I kind of think of it as a conversation, even if it's a conversation that the writer is kind of having a bit with themselves or yeah. with, their, with um, their editor. It is also a conversation that uh, em, em kind of thinks about, um, the, empathises with the, with the reader as well. Um, and so when you, when you start off in one place, what is the next question that gets raised and what would follow from that. And that creates mm. a bit of a structure. Mm. So there are, there are just subtle differences. There's a more ex, more explanatory tone, but not in a kind of, um, you know, newsplainy way. It's just mm. that you, you can't um, rip along with a narrative and assume that everyone knows exactly what, what you're talking about when you bring up new terms and new names uh, yes. and new concepts. Um, often... I think putting laying down foundational concepts in an area, though, is um, fabulous um, first principles that say when, when we've talked to scientists and so on, they're like, I'm so glad you asked me this question. It seems like such a basic question, but it's so often misunderstood. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with going back to basics or, you know, um, just stating what the facts are. You know, if we're writing about the ocean, how much of the of the globe does the ocean? How deep? How deep is it? How many? How much water is in it? Just some basic perspective perspective facts 
And often mm. they're really, often you, you actually realise I actually did not know that at all. I had no yeah. idea that. So they can be really interesting material in themselves. So, um, you know, you have to be, it depends how widely or how narrowly you frame a question, but you do need to lay down uh, a layer of uh, foundational knowledge upon which the conversation can then take off. Mm. That makes sense. Yes, and yes. Of course, and, and, you know, I think um, we discussed before that depending on the, the news organisation or, or the way that these explainers are done, there's many different formats. Yes. Um, and they're different. They, they have a different kind of um, structure in each case. So ours have evolved um, with a fairly light but consistent structure where we have mm. a, I mean, I can talk about what the structure is, but, it, yeah. I mean, yeah, please you, do. Oh, well, you can pick it up by reading any of them. I mean, they have a look. So they're, they're what we yeah. call branding. Um, they have a, a livery at the top. So you know, you know immediately you're reading an explainer. But as well as that, um, they have something of a consistency of, of tone and structure. They have a few parts of introduction. Um, st- still storytelling, still wanting to start with if it's a personal story that's fine just something that engages the reader something that also says without and fairly um quickly why are you reading this and why mm. does this matter mm. it's called the, the nut the nut in ut par which which many of your listeners will know about mm-hmm. but yeah the nut par that that is what what are we doing this and why should i why is this relevant um, and then in, in the case of these particular explainers, we throw up, well, here's, here's why it matters, here's what questions it raises, and now we're going to proceed to answer them. So then we just roll out the questions that this topic ans- uh, raises. Um, and so the foundational concepts I was just talking about might appear in the first subhead. So if we're talking about... Um, well, with the example of um, Sharon's explainer on what is is time travel possible, mm-hmm. um, the first question, which might not seem immediately obvious, is um, what is time? So, mm. um, <laughs> so uh, I mean, I can I can duck back to how she introduces that that um, explainer, but yeah, the first basic concept, which is not easy to get your head around, is what is time and what does it have to do with space and why do they talk about time space? <laughs> yes. But, so okay, this- let, let's talk about that particular um, chapter, that particular explainer, because was that a – I was in the shower and I was wondering what time travel is <laughs> moment oh, or how Sharon, did that come about? I think Sharon proposed that one um, partly really? um, – because she's really interested in that science and in the quantum physics and it was the pandemic was in full swing and people weeks and days were were kind of, you know, melding into one and everyone was talking about, oh, I've lost my sense of time and, and so on. And so, um, yeah, Sharon just proposed writing something that explains um, what the actual because there's lots of fiction and science mm. fiction around time travel, but what does the actual science say and how close is it to reality or potential, at least conceptually how close is it, or theoretically how close is it and possible is it, yeah. 
So whether you take that as an example or or, or one that you've written um, mm. from personal experience, because you not only edit, you also write some of the explainers, there mm. can be a situation that you just research so much you've got stupid amounts of research. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, do you ever get to the stage where you've written, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of words and you realise, well, that it's just not going to fit so what happens then? How do you determine, you know, because it's all interesting. Yeah. Mm. Well, you have to, um, That yes, that can happen. And sometimes you just have to pull back and think to yourself, what is the, what is the overarching question here? What is the most important question? And mm. that, that then forms the spine of your piece. So if something's digressing, interesting but digressive, and you're 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 up to six thousand words, well, <clears throat> you know it's that's it's still fascinating and it's a shame, but you have to kind of get rid of that. I mean, I in in when I was doing researching the table manners one, it was quite tricky because it's the nature mm. of researching something too, and you know this is not specific to explainers at all. The more that you look into it, the more fascinating it gets. Mm. which is how people end up writing books about subjects here yeah? mm. um, because you think oh, this I can't fit all of this or I've got so much extra material. Um, but you do have to, you do have to um, discipline yourself to stay on point and part of it too is asking a, finding a, I was going to say narrow, but it doesn't have to be narrow, but finding a, a good size um, scope to start with, a question that is not going to, um, you know, like what is the meaning of the universe kind of thing <laughs> where, where you could, you know, you could go on forever. So you, you also don't want to be too narrow. Like um, with Sharon's, you could have said, is um, back to the future real or something? If you wanted to just deal right. with travelling back to the past, you could have addressed one question. You know, or uh, yeah, or can um, why do astronauts end up accidentally traveling in time, or something like that? You could do mm. that, but I guess we try to find that sweet spot between covering off a few different aspects, but mm. still staying true and checking back too. Did we actually answer that question? Yes, yes. <laughs> we actually answered the question. We got a bit carried away for a while there, but. <laughs> Did we deliver what we said? We were, that's really important. Mm -mm. So let's talk about the table manners one because you can talk about it from personal experience because that's the one that you, that's one of the ones that you wrote because mm. you said that you don't want it to be too broad, like what's the meaning of the universe or whatever. But yeah. uh, where table manners come from is pretty broad because there are yeah. so many different types of table manners. There's so many different cultures. There's so many different it's, tables. It's over the top, yeah. So how did you... Rain that in. How? Uh, take me back to. Okay, I've thought of the idea. What's my first approach, and how did I decide what would end up being in it? Well, I, I mean, I. So I looked at the. I started doing the research, and I, I spoke to uh, one of the leading um, social historians in that area. She t pointed me to a few texts in in that area but yes it, I realized pretty quickly that I could I could have written a whole explainer on the history of the fork you know and why it used to be called the devil's implement 
or why, um, you know, why cannibals have the best table manners of, of, of any of any kind of culture, you know, that which is an which is an actual thing. Um, so you could you could, you know, do all sorts of specific things. In the end, my so what I found was that I felt like the cultural the texts were very Western Europe. Yep. And so trying to do that was really frustrating. And so then I wanted to in, incorporate um, something, some more um, Eastern and Middle Eastern history mm. as well, as best I could. But of course, you could keep going and going. You really yes. could keep going and going. And you really could write a book about it. So you have to you have to find a light way to take a representative sample. And you, you're not providing, you can't possibly provide every single um, culture in the world over the history of civilizations, but you can speak to a range of different um, people that is somewhat, I think readers um, are reasonably understanding that, you can't, that you're not going to be able to do all of that because you're not proposing that that's what you've done, you've Mm. essay and that you've you've taken a fairly broad range of people so I did speak to the guy who's the academy director at Debrett's which is the London-based um, etiquette training place um, that is the the last word in in good behavior mm. um, he was really interesting and he was in any case he was really surprising um, what the things to me the things he said, it he, he was fabulous. And because um, a lot of these histories, as I said, were very Western Europe focused, then I wanted to look at how, because we're in Australia, I wanted to look at how that post-colonial mm. uh, and colonial kind of translation, so how um, table manners get mashed in different. So I, I spoke to someone who... Um, is an etiquette expert in America, and I spoke to the chef, uh, fabulous Tony Tan, who um, grew up in what is now known as Malaysia but used to be a British colony. Um, I spoke to Jesse Singh, who is a restaurateur and chef, and he grew up in India, in the, in the Punjab, and he also lived in America as well. So, And I spoke to... Um, Father Bob Maguire, who's a Catholic priest in Melbourne, for his take on on the relative importance or not of table manners. So, as well as people who were, you know, experts in in the field. So, I did a lot of reading, and I really tried to provide a few different, you know, the old Rubik's cube or whatever. Yeah. But I, I don't. I mean, I didn't use words like post-colonial either. I kind of said, oh, sure. you know, but in the colonies, uh, table manners would have been more relaxed, right? And you know, and then sometimes they were, and sometimes it went the other way. Mm. You know, so, so in a way, the table manners just becomes a a way of looking at culture itself and how it changes in different in different settings. I guess. Mm-mm. When you're commissioning a, or, you know, um, a, a giving the story to an editor slash writer who's a subject matter expert, whether in China or whatever, mm. 
Do you ever get a situation where it's like, come on, now you're just showing off. I'm going to cross that out. You know, no one needs to know that. I don't mind. It's just too in-depth, you know what I mean? Oh, down a rabbit hole, into the weeds. Mm. Um, Mm. No, well, I'd rather, I generally say um, time and resources allowing, I'd rather go into the weeds and then pull back than just have, the same old stuff again, you know. So sometimes Mm. some of that details really see the devils in the detail and it's the same as your listeners know with good writing. It's it's, sometimes it's just that detail and it's a matter of picking picking your detail. So I guess I don't mind having details to choose from. Right. So sometimes I do want, um, it's more likely that I'll go back and say, but, how do those how do those branch meetings of the communist party work in practice mm. or but what are the rules on how do you join like you know how do you join the communist party if you're in china and you want to join up um because they're more it's more relatable to have that level of detail mm. um if, if i get bored or i'm bored or if i if i think now you're just showing off well then that's a sign doesn't that doesn't yeah journalists are, i don't know they're not really sh- well, I don't get much of that, but mm. <laughs> I don't really get that. But I, I um, you know, most of it's just really good information. It's a matter of choosing what's more, what's the most entertaining. Sure. Not not entertaining, but engaging. Yes. Know? Yes. Now, this question is: I, I know that this what I'm. Your answer to this is going to be: oh, that's just second nature to you because you have been a journalist for you know your whole career, but. A lot of people, especially those who haven't had a lot of experience in journalism but are very adept at Google, (laughs) um, can do desk research on Google and don't necessarily have the same rigour in record-keeping and, you know, um, records on where the information came from. Um, Not only in terms of where the information came from but making an assessment on the source of the information. So Mm. if you can, you know, pretend you're talking to first-year journalism students or even beyond talking to high school, (laughs) what is your approach when you do research and you're looking up a whole heap of different documents and stuff like that in determining whether they're credible, whether you're going to use them, and how do you physically uh, keep the information? Um, in, in documents and folders on my, on my, um, on my laptop, you know, um, and in, in a, in a kind of, um, there's no, I mean, I, I don't do, because I'm doing so much editing, Mm. you know, I, I don't have a a big stack of, um, pieces that I'm, that I'm actually working on, but Mm -hmm. I do, and I know that Sharon definitely Sharon, the explainer reporter, definitely does this, that she'll be really ambitious with her choice of sources and she'll go to the world experts in something. So um, she she'll go to um, not necessarily someone she can get on the phone that afternoon. It it depends on time, how much time mm. you have, you know. But mm. she'll email someone who is overseas, and to, and if you have to get up at six in the morning because that's when they're free, then then that's kind of what you end up doing. Um, I guess in my case, I wanted to interview 
in the table manners, um, Margaret Visser, who's a writer who is now living in, has retired to Europe, and I was thinking, oh, will she be available? Would she want to talk to me? And so on. And um, I I got her contact um, details and I just emailed and she was really amenable and mm. pleased. Um, and then I checked back. I always check back the facts um, as well. So, um, what do you what are you referring to when you're saying you check back the facts? Uh, well, I guess before. Okay, so you're asking me about sources first. So I would mm. say always consult several. Um, you need to find out in this field, in the area that you're reporting on. You need to know what the prevailing um, thinking, what the what the thinking is, and what the different strands of thinking are. So you can make an assessment for yourself about. Um, what good information is and what isn't, you know, and and you kind of you have to build that up in layers a little bit. Um, but are you so saying you should I speak to an speak. expert? Pardon? Are you saying you should speak to an expert as opposed to just go on their written available yes, written? Yes, great. Definitely. And tell us why, because there are so many people. Honestly, there are so many people who think it's okay just to go on, you know, what's published out oh, there. So please talk to why it's so important to talk to well, them. Well, it is okay in the sense that I suppose it's out in the it's out in the public sphere. But if you're doing something that's quite in-depth, I mean, I just think um, it's, it's where possible it's good to um, talk to someone and they might have thoughts about what they've published since they've published it. It might mm. be a bit out of date. Um, they might have lots of, you might have questions about what they've written that you want to follow up on and it gives you something fresh. Like it yep. gives you something fresh so then you're not just um, aggregating what already exists, you're helping update and uh, update the sum of knowledge about a particular topic. I mean sometimes yes. you can't reach someone and you've only got a text to rely on, I guess, and as long as it's, Credible. I mean, when you get into the science space, that's that's really specialist and, and complex. Mm. Like what when you're talking about medical trials and that kind of thing. I mean, you know, that's 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 really important to get all of that right. And that's something complex that you know science reporters like like Liam are, are specialist in. Um, yeah, but I think it, I, I just think in general, it's always um, good to talk to people. Yeah, de de definitely talk to them because um, they'll ex yeah they'll they'll just expand on what on what they've already written and as I say it, you know kind of for your piece for your whatever you're writing it'll give you mm. something new yeah so. yeah I think it's so important too now it, uh, I I loved um what's it like to be chased by a cassowary and I gifted it to many people. And I oh, know that this, this book is just one of those books that there, you, I, I, you can already, I can already think the people who are going to go, Oh my God, that's such a great, you know, gift as well. Nice. Um, there's so many different, as we've mentioned topics that you've covered. What were the, some of your favorites? Um, I did like the accents one by mm. our culture writer Carl Quinn because I didn't really know the I just didn't know the answer and I um, and I also like the fact that it's it's a little bit like the table manners in that it's about um, the way we behave socially so the mm. way that we speak and the way that we sound so I like the ones that um, put a bit of a mirror back onto us as a culture and also they're Australian as well so you know um, 
they're, they're that's distinctive, you know, that um, you can't read about this stuff just anywhere yes. in the world. Um, what else did I like? I like um, uh, Sharon's explainer about why Russians get poisoned. Um, oh. That was that was we were talking because Alexei Navalny, um, the opposition, uh, the the um, yeah opposition leader in um, in Russia, and um, I. We, Sharon and I were kind of saying why poison. That was that was one of our questions in doing this. So um, that's just a bit of a kind of interesting cloak and dagger um, mm. piece. That was good. Um, What's love at first sight was a little bit, you know, um, punctured the myth a bit. Um, all mm-hmm. about pheromones and mating and um, the importance of taste and smell. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I kind of, they're, they're all, like, I really think they're all really interesting in their own yes. way. Yeah. And, yeah, so even. I like, love I love some of the some of the titles, like what do sharks want and why do they bite? Yeah. How do you find a Dalai Lama? <laughs> and some of them are just cool, you know. How? And so many people would have asked this question. How did breakdancing get into the Olympics? <laughs> Well, they're all questions too. Like, yes, um, maybe they sound a bit naive, but like, how how do you find a Dalai Lama's really is a real, really important geopolitical question <laughs> at the moment? But yeah, and the answers are yeah, the answer was really like I don't know if you read the read the Dalai Lama one, but the answer <laughs> was really surprising. Um, and I, I don't know if they'll do the same process again, but. Um, yeah, it's pretty fascinating that detail. And of course, you know, the thing about having this these reporters that I work with um, is that people like the guy who wrote um, "How Do You Find a Dalai Lama" is a former Delhi correspondent, you know, who met the Dalai Lama mm-hmm. in India. You know, so it's kind of writing it with these people are writing with a depth of knowledge that's really interesting in itself. And he talks about meeting the Dalai Lama in the piece as well. Mm-hmm. So. It's got that um, that um, level of lived, you know lived experience with it as well. Mm. And um, so finally, what is, what do you think is um, your top three tips? If somebody was wanting to write their own explainer, <laughs> what would your top three tips be on how to write a great explainer? Well, think about your audience and um, and what kind of function you want your explainer to have. So is it something where something's happened that day and you want to you want people to come away with the five most important things from that event? Or is it that you want to take a topic or a question and write the definitive guide to to something? So um, from from thinking about the purpose of of your explainer, mm. um, over and above I'm going to explain something. Who, who are you? Who are you explaining to? And where is this appearing? And what form do you want it to take? Um, that will. Um, that's pretty important threshold question. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, think about do do scope out whether the answer is going to be interesting and try mm. to include things that are uh, surprising or not the usual. Yes, thing that you can find online um, that will come about by doing things like talking to people. Um, mm. Yeah, so 
Um, that's another one. Mm. Um, it's hard to think of three things off the three most important things off the top of my head. I mean, <laughs> just don't forget about the importance of um, story. I did say mm. that these are driven by, um, you know, some to some extent logic um, and not your straight narrative, but even when Sharon was writing the explainer about time travel, she did, uh, it was, it was, she started off talking about a scientist who she found in her research who had dedicated his life to studying time and space mm-hmm. because his father had died when he was 10 and he wanted to travel back in. And he had read H.G. Wells' The Time Machine in, at, around the same time. And he kind of put two and two together and decided that he wanted to travel back in time and be able to see his father again. And I think that finding that human story is, make, and, you know, he has gone on to be an expert. So it was a great person to find for the purposes of the story because he, he there was that human story and then he is an expert as well. But it does tap into um, something about the human condition. Maybe yeah. that's Maybe that's... 3b of my points is yeah that yeah there, no I, I like it is that there are some things that are universal to all of us mm. and um and that even you know in that case it's this the poignant fact that um we really struggle to live in the present you know as humans and um not to get to but you know that can you go forwards in time can you go backwards in time it, it has a really kind of uh, emotional um resonance for for people as well so um even even um what's it like to live with dementia which is another one of the pieces in in the book Mm. is it's not about um medical condition it's about what it raises for you as an existential thing when you have uh when you're living with dementia dementia or or when you're caring for someone with dementia you know what's it like for your relationship and and for your sense of identity mm. and so i think um not to forget that it is about um it's about us it's about talking to us about how we experience life i love it that's perfect and on that note thank you so much for your time today felicity pleasure thanks This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations, and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash freelance. All right, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Felicity. I think it'd be really interesting to be writing explainers and to be able to dive deeply into some topics that you're really interested in or passionate about. Um, This morning, before I started recording this, I was giving feedback to members of the Freelance Writing Masterclass program. And I think it's fascinating just to see the types of topics and angles and stories that they're interested in researching, because that's one of the fantastic things about being a freelance writer. I know that um, 
One of the one of the things that I love doing as a freelance writer is that when I know I need to find out a bit more about something, like let's say I need to, I'm about to buy a house and I need to find out more about that process, or um, I'm uh, I need to grow a certain area of my social media or whatever, uh, and I need to find out more about that subject, I just write a story on it, which gives me this wonderful access to experts who I can interview. So not only do I get the benefit of learning about whatever it is that I want to learn about for my personal life, I also end up writing a story about it and being paid for it. So that's one of the fun parts about, uh, well, certainly one of the efficient parts of um, of freelance writing. Anyway, we have come to the end of this week's episode. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, if you're keen to connect with me on social media I would love to connect with me with you just find me on Instagram and Twitter at Valerie Koo that's k-h-o-o you can find me at valeriekoo.com but of course join the podcast listener community on Facebook always in there and love connecting with everyone thanks for listening everyone and I look forward to chatting to you again next time Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 